welcome to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion, so let's do this. Welcome. What's going on? (laughs) If you are back for another episode, what's up? Thanks for being back. I hope the week's been good to you. I want to take a minute to thank everyone who has reviewed this podcast on the iTunes store. I read every review. I so appreciate you taking the time to do that. Thank you so much. And if you haven't yet and you dig what you hear, please take a minute to leave a review. You guys requested that I do a series of interviews with authors, so I'm kicking that off today with Bronwyn Percival, co-author of Reinventing the Wheel, Milk, Microbes, and the Fight for Real Cheese, which of course allows us to ruminate about one of my favorite topics slash food items slash daydream materials, cheese. As some of you may know, I did an apprenticeship at a cheese shop here in London, Neil's Yard Dairy, as research for a project I'm working on. That's how I met Bronwyn, and my little love letter to that experience turned into an article that has just been published on one of my favorite food websites, Food52. So I'll throw that in the hat too, to this kickoff of the month of authors on the Keep It Quirky podcast. And shout out to my editor, Eric Kim, for making the piece something readers could really learn from. The article's called Nine Useful Things I Learned as a London Cheesemonger. It was so much fun to write and to share my experiences. I'll link to it in the description box if you want to check it out. And before we hop in with Bronwyn, I want to quickly introduce you to a guy I met the other week named Tom Hunt. He's a chef, and in his chefdom, he's very pro-food sustainability, which is why he was invited to present at and cook for the Food Sustainability Media Award here in London. So we're here today for the Food Sustainability Media Award for Thomson Reuters. So the terminology Chef Tom uses to describe his sustainability-motivated cooking is eco-chef. This was the first time I had heard that term. So you are known as being an eco-chef, correct? Yeah. Yeah. What does that even mean? (laughs) (laughs) Basically, what it means and the reason why I called myself that is because I decided to prioritize the ethics of my food above all else, above taste, above everything. But fortunately, sustainability, food ethics go hand in hand with good quality and taste. So rather than kind of the quality and flavors of my food diminishing, they've only improved. He made a menu for the evening showcasing what have been identified as the three food paradoxes. I think largely they're issues that we're all familiar with, but he threw out some fascinating statistics as he was talking about it. So I'm going to let him tell you what the three food paradoxes are. So the first of the three food paradoxes in the order of my menu this evening is food versus fuel, because we have this strange situation where a third of all agricultural cereal crops are used for animal feed and biofuel. The second one is waste versus starvation because we're wasting 1.3 billion tonnes of food a year Um, and then there's people starving in the world which is a huge atrocity. Final one is hunger versus obesity and basically for every undernourished person there's two obese people in the world. Yeah, wow. I think an awareness of this stuff is really important. Tom says that luckily, delicious food and sustainable food usually go hand in hand, which makes sense. 
think farm to table versus farm to factory to plastic packaging to table. This is really interesting stuff and there is definitely change afoot in the food industry. I can feel it. I think um, both in the UK and in the States. And you know, this stuff can feel like an uphill battle, but there's a quote I love that says, if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. Basically accepting the challenge is a positive thing. And this idea of taking on a challenge, tackling an obstacle for a greater goal, a purpose, leads me to today's guest, Bronwyn Percival. As I mentioned earlier, she's the co-author of the book Reinventing the Wheel, Milk, Microbes, and the Fight for Real Cheese. She's also in research and development at Neil's Yard Dairy, London's preeminent cheese shop, which is where I met her. So for her job, she is frequently visiting farms out in the field with cows, working with small-scale farmhouse cheesemakers on making the very best cheese. I think of Bronwyn as the cheese queen, and she is taking a stand for real cheese. What is real cheese, you might ask? Well, you will find out in the interview, but I think Bronwyn is massively inspirational, and you can apply so many of the things that she talks about to other aspects of life, not just cheese. (laughs) Anything you care about, it's worth fighting for. And cheese lovers out there, I'm really excited for you to listen to this interview. She also talks about her favorite ways to eat cheese and tips for what to look for and what to ask about when you are buying cheese. She also tells us how she's driving the industry forward and how we can all lend a hand. Hi, Bronwyn. Hi, Katie. How are you today? I'm great. So glad that the sun is shining and we're here talking about real cheese. It is a beautiful day in London, and thank you for having me to your flat. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. This is awesome. The sun is coming through these like big living room windows. You have more books than I have seen in a long time. <laughs> yes, it's a bit of a problem for us. We're going to be pushed out by our book collection, but what a way to go. You're also above the cheese shop. Yes. And in wintertime, we know that Christmas is coming because the smell of Stilton fills up our flat. Oh my God, heavenly. <laughs> As you ascend the stairs, there are different uh, levels of cheese aroma that you go through. And uh, yeah, so so yeah, we, we know what time of the year it is based on the uh, based on the kind of cheese we're selling the most of. That's hilarious. <laughs> so is it lovely having this flat smell like Stilton or does it kind of cross the line? You actually get used to it. It's funny when you come home, you smell it. And then within five minutes, you're uh, you're completely oblivious. And then we can cook things ourselves. We bake a lot of bread. So that that sort of wipes the cheese smell uh, out a little bit. Yeah. Well, well played. I remember I did a video with Hershey's and I went to the Hershey, Pennsylvania factory. And when I first walked in, I was like, because it just has a fudgy smell that hits you the moment you walk through the doors. And then about five, 10 minutes in, you're like, the smell transforms into something very awkward and then it like gets in your hair and your clothes. So it hasn't gone that far with you with Stilton. No, not at all. Thank yeah. goodness. Thank goodness. The fact that you have this flat with all of these books, it could be a library in here above a cheese shop. I feel like that perfectly sums you up because you are the cheese queen. And also, you're very you're very academic, though. I always grew up thinking I would do something academic. Probably being a scientist would have been the first thing on my list of career career goals. And I think over time, because I also loved to cook and I really loved to eat, um, that I I gradually began to drift in this direction of thinking that doing something applied and specifically with food would be would be 
it was a little bit more off the beaten path, but I think I had always been raised to think, as, as many, many children are, um, do whatever you love and the rest will take care of itself. So um, I, I went and explored other things and gradually came to cheese thinking, oh, of all of this training in science and biochemistry, you know, what a shame that I hadn't started earlier down this path. But actually now with my job working with cheesemakers and trying to understand how cheese, what makes cheese tick and how can we make cheese better, a lot of that training is actually coming straight around to be really useful. And in the book you talk about as a kid, you had a little mini farm situation. You had a goat, right? Yeah, we had uh, two goats, Natasha and Ginger, and our small suburban farm. And really what I realized in retrospect was that the style of agriculture that we were practicing in our suburban backyard was actually industrial agriculture writ small, that we had taken these goats who were living in the middle of a backyard full of sort of chaparral and weeds and um, manzanita and all of these things that would have been perfect goat food uh, growing naturally. And we'd put them in a pen and we're feeding them expensive, um, expensive bought in feed, which probably wasn't as good for them. And also um, from the perspective of the milk that they were making wasn't nearly as interesting. But you did it because you had this like Bible of how to raise a goat. Best practice at the time was give your goats the most high energy feed available. That will cause them to make the most milk, which is clearly yield is better and gives you more profit, even though we weren't even we weren't doing anything more than sort of drinking the milk and then ultimately giving it away because we had too much. So it didn't matter if you spend a lot on your inputs, as long as the outputs you get are very, very um there's a lot of them. So ultimately, uh, you know, I messed around with making a few cheeses. They were never very good. They, we, we pasteurized all the milk. So any microbial potential that was in that milk got wiped from it first. And then we replaced it with bought in starter cultures from a biotechnology company that ended up making cheese that was, that was really faceless and quite dull. We made a couple of batches and then ultimately it was a dead end. And I think back to that teenage self uh, as I was going down, you know, down to the pen and milking the goats twice a day by hand, thinking, gosh, if only I had known uh, then what I know now, I think it would have been a fantastic potential opportunity to discover what the taste of our backyard was. Your book, you talk about the fight for real cheese. Tell me what real cheese is. Cheese, we came to realize over the course of writing this book, is our opportunity as consumers to actually taste a farming system, to taste all of the choices that are made by a farmer put together in the process of making their milk from their land, using the food and the animals that are best suited to that place, and then intensifying the flavor of all of those things into something that we as consumers can actually taste and which tastes unique. And that only works if the cheese making process, what happens in the vat, doesn't get in the way of the expression of that milk. Um, so the milk has to come from someplace interesting and be made in an interesting way. But if you're making cheese with strong flavored starters, if you're pasteurizing the milk to get rid of all of the native microbes in it, you're basically making a commodity input that's just something white. 
that you can then magically process in your vat into something that has a character that you've added to it. And that is the great lost opportunity of the cheese industry right now, that we're thinking too much about what's going on in that vat, what packets of starter cultures, what flavors we're adding to that cheese, rather than what is the interesting thing that I can do on this farm and nowhere else? And how can I then get out of the way of that milk and allow it to express itself so that what the person who's eating that cheese is tasting is something that only I can do and therefore is worth the price. I think it's kind of assumed in what you're saying, but I just want to say it outright that unique quality of the cheese makes it better. It is actually more delicious, right? So it's not just about being different and being an expression of the milk. It is about being more delicious. Absolutely. That is that is the key point. And I think sometimes you you, you know the the response that some people say is, well, but these starter cultures that are manufactured these days, you can buy starter cultures that will give you these really sweet caramel pineapple flavors. Like that's way more delicious than something that um, might be more subtle. And I think that is a really, you know, it's such an important point because deliciousness, I think quality is something we need to redefine quality as something that only can be done through difficult means. And that if we understand what those flavors are, they are by definition better flavors than something that can be made with commodity milk that's intensively farmed with flavors that come out of a packet. That is what we call the moral value of flavor. I love that. And it's true with everything in life, almost anything that is worth fighting for is better. It's like, it's worth, that's, that's just it. It's worth fighting for. Absolutely. It, if, it, if it's difficult, if it requires a, a passion for what you're doing and attention at every detail and not cutting any corners, it's got to be worth, it's got to be worth more. Otherwise, why bother? And this is what we see with so many cheesemakers who are working with total integrity today is that those are the cheeses, you know, those are the cheesemakers who are making things on a small scale. They have really extensive systems, low yields, and their businesses are less profitable because I think consumers don't necessarily recognize the differences between their cheeses and the cheeses that are made with cutting corners. And in order to change the world and in order ultimately to make those make those cheeses sustainable, um, we've got it. We've got to start this conversation with people who love cheese about what those flavors mean. I love that you are framing this in terms of changing the world, because it might seem haha kind of lofty, but it's actually true. And it gets to it gets to your passion. And before we go any further, I want to say that you co-wrote this book, Reinventing the Wheel, with your husband, Francis. Absolutely. No, this is a really important point because, you know, this book is ultimately, it's like a distillation of our arguments across the dinner table over the course of the last decade. And, you know, our on our first date, uh, we were already arguing about whether cheddar is a method or it's a place. And over time, you know, his background is in wine and he um, writes about wine. And the wine industry is really interesting because it's having a lot of these conversations already. And the conversation about where does the value of a wine come from? What makes a wine great or um, or not great 
uh, or confected and artificial tasting? What gives that value? These are all things that people are arguing vigorously about within the wine industry. So he'd come home from uh, from work, and I'd come home from work, and we'd sit down and talk about it. And um, he would say, "Why why isn't cheese having these conversations? Why is the cheese industry this way?" And I would say, "Well, I you know I don't really know. I can't explain why, but in or it, it really some of the key ideas that we've worked through in reinventing the wheel are actually just ideas that are being worked out in this other in this other area and um, that are equally applicable to cheese as they are to wine. There are so many parallels between the two. When I worked with Neil's Yard Dairy last year, I thought about how I learned the vocabulary to talk about cheese in a way that most people I would say already know to talk about wine, so it's that much easier for most people. And it exists for cheese, it's just a little harder to find. It's not as much common knowledge. It's true. And finding ways to talk about cheese that allow people to work with that vocabulary as quickly as possible. Um, and how can we communicate the flavor of cheese with our customers who are coming into the shop? I won't I won't pretend that sometimes it's not intimidating to walk into the shop with, you know, 60 or 70 cheeses on the counter that you don't necessarily know the names of. When I started working at Neil's Yard Dairy even, I was overwhelmed by all of these different cheeses and names and flavors. And really, our success as a retailer should be our ability to make people feel at home and make them feel comfortable talking about and recognizing what they're tasting. And that is breaking down the barriers to getting more people interested in this amazing food. And that's what Neil's Yard Dairy is so darn good at. I want to go back to the wording that you and Francis chose for the title. And Okay, so let me read the entire thing. Reinventing the wheel, milk, microbes, and the fight for real cheese. Why did you choose fight? <laughs> like literally the fighting word. This this is more than anything else a manifesto. And it is about how right now the industry isn't having a conversation about what quality is and how actually without people standing up and taking a stand for real flavors and for real integrity of farming and real integrity of cheesemaking, these practices are going to be wiped off the face of the earth forever and they're never going to come back. When you lose these um, things, as we've seen with British cheese, British cheese was basically destroyed across the course of the 20th century because farmers stopped making cheese and the market turned towards um, selling liquid milk instead. And it only took a generation for all of those practices and all of that knowledge and all of that infrastructure to be completely lost. And what we're trying right now to do is to combine our resources, looking at old books, talking with scientists who are looking at you know microbes and microbial communities in ways that 10 or 15 years ago, we didn't even under, begin to understand what was going on, to sort of stitch together all this information to recreate something that we had just on tap 100 years ago here. It's really important to recognize that this is not work that's just going to happen without the support and without people understanding why these things are worth fighting for, are worth paying more for, and that that's real value. And it's not just value from a flavor point of view, but it's also value from a social point of view, an environmental point of view, that all of these things fit seamlessly together into something that is really worth fighting for. It's also interrelated. So it's easy to go to the grocery store and see a cheese on the shelf and think that it's just the, th the thing on the shelf. But everything you just mentioned and all of 
the people and animals that are touched by the system, I'm. It would just be such a tragedy if we if we lost all of that. One of the things that I think really has happened across the course again of the 20th century is that food, the foods that we eat, have been divorced from agriculture, or at least our understanding of agriculture in a lot of ways, that instead of buying things that taste of places, we're buying things that have been stripped down and turned into commodities. And the result of that, there have been many good results. Efficiency has come up a lot. The price of food has gone down. But there are all of these uncosted side effects of that sort of system that has really been deleterious to society and ultimately aren't sustainable. And, you know, it's really interesting that writing this book and doing the research for it and talking with all the different cheesemakers and people who are working to produce food has really changed the way that we eat. And instead of feeling that, you know, protein should sit at the center of our plate every single day, I think we've come away feeling like animal protein should be really expensive and it should be something that we eat a little bit of the very highest quality. And that's true not, um, not only from a health perspective, but also from a perspective of all of the things that make um, real cheese good. I think it's a really good sign that Neil's Yard Dairy is so successful here in London because of that, that exactly what you are expressing. That's what they stand for in a very clear way. Yes, real cheese is more expensive than commodity cheese, and there's no denying that. And I think actually, as you know, as we as we talk about in the book, it needs to become even more expensive for the very best farms to keep doing what they're doing and actually to even get better. The flip side of that is that you don't need a huge amount of cheese to be you know to have a really wonderful experience. And if you come in and get a little 100, 150 gram slice of cheese. That is the most wonderful luxury. You know, that's all you need. And it's and it's an, an opportunity to taste something really special. Um, if, you know, 0.1% of the people who go and, um, you know, are currently buying a block of cheddar in the grocery store would trade up to having a little slice of something real, it would change the world. Mm -hmm. That's all we need. You and Francis made a comparison in the book that I love. It was comparing your relationship with each other being um, from two different countries and what that means in terms of how we think about flavor. With the one where we're talking about um, sort of cross-cultural understandings yeah. of, um, of, of jokes, for example. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. And how his jokes kind of fall flat with your parents, <laughs> but it's a cultural thing. Yeah. And acculturation is what allows us to understand what we're tasting. And that's why, I, you know, you could never blame somebody for walking into a cheese shop and trying one of these cheeses that's loaded with these sweet tasting starters and immediately liking it. Because yes, it's completely it's, you know, it's completely overtly delicious in that salt, sugar, fat kind of way. But once you understand what those flavors mean, you start to think about those flavors in a different way. And now whenever I taste a cheese that has those starters in it, my response is, ew, gross. But that's not because, you know, that's not because those flavors are intrinsically gross. It's because I've begun to speak that language or mm -hmm. my brain has begun to speak that flavor language. And it's really, it's not difficult. It just takes the opportunity to have this conversation that currently nobody with in the industry is helping their customers to have. How long have you been with Neil's Yard Dairy? I started working at Neil's Yard Dairy in 
um, September of 2005, so almost 13 years. Wow. And how has your role there changed and evolved? I started out working as a cheesemonger in the burra shop downstairs. I think that was actually the perfect place to start because what better way to immerse yourself in cheese than to be a cheesemonger and to taste everything every day. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, I um, I was really interested. I think my science background started coming out immediately and all these questions about um, you know, how, how cheese is made and how it's safe uh, were interesting to me. So I volunteered to take on a little bit of the quality assurance work at that point. And then about a year in, the buyer at Neil Jardieri, um, who was Sarah Stewart at the time, um, decided that she was going to go and travel around the world. And I was in the right place at the right time to take on that role. So really, over the last 12 years, it's been a process of first doing the buying, being in the engine room, controlling the stock levels, all of the glamorous stuff that is not that glamorous, but actually keeps things going and is so, so important to much more of a selection and R&D kind of role, where now I spend a lot more time going out, visiting farms, working with the cheesemakers to solve problems, selecting the batches of cheese that we're going to sell, and really kind of trying to figure out the things that are going to drive the industry forward for the next 5, 10, 20 years. You're a problem solver. Solver now. Exactly. No, that if I had to choose one term, it really, and there are a lot of problems out there. <laughs> so Neil's Yard Dairy is all about British cheese. I mean, you guys carry cheeses from the British Isles with a few exceptions. You carry some Parmesan and Comté, I believe French Comté. We sell Comté on wholesale and we also sell a bit of feta and a bit of mozzarella. We used to sell brie until last year. And I think this encapsulates the mission of Neil's Yard Dairy in a great way. Probably four or five years ago, uh, there was a couple who have a farm in um, Suffolk and they were interested in starting to make cheese and they came to us and they said, what kind of cheese should we make? And we said, well, we don't have a really great English brie style cheese. And so um, we set about working with them to start making this raw milk brie de mot style cheese. Baron by exactly, God, which is one of my all time favorites. It's so good. And, you know, they deserve full credit for not just taking the easy route when we uh, you know when when it became clear to them that just milking Holsteins was not going to give the milk best milk for cheese they went to France and bought 72 Montbelliard cows yes. from <laughs> you know from the Comte region to bring across to milk for their cheese they've done everything at every point to make something really world-class it got world-class really quickly and it actually allowed us to stop selling the French Brie de Meaux that we had sold for years and years because there was nothing to compete with it you know when I first started talking with Johnny and he decided to make a brie, I was like you know Johnny someday maybe in 10 or 15 years we might even stop selling the French Brie because we'll just sell yours and it happened in like three years <laughs> it was that good what's so ironic about the fact that people don't know all that much about cheese is that I would say that cheese is one of the most beloved food items, if you will. I think whenever I do a YouTube video featuring a cheese dish, I mean, people go crazy for it. And that shot of like the slow-mo melty cheese, Melt. <laughs> it does not get better than that. So everyone, I think, not everyone, obviously, but 
so many people would say, oh, I love cheese, but maybe without really knowing what it means to love cheese. And I think that that was my biggest takeaway from working at Neil's Yard Dairy was this thing that I proclaimed to love. I actually learned about it. And without sounding too corny, it made my love deeper. <laughs> I completely agree. And one of one of the one of one question that somebody asked us once is doesn't doesn't learning all these doesn't learning about the way cheese works and what makes it tick make you like doesn't it ruin the the joy and the mystery for you of like what what makes cheese wonderful and no it's exactly the opposite by understanding how it works and all of the different things that are feeding into it sort of historical and scientific and cultural and economic and it all makes it that much more beautiful and interesting and enjoyable you talking about cheese it's it is just completely contagious and i would say that a lot of people listening to this pod right now are like in a way we're probably preaching to the chorus a little bit right they if they decided to click on this with the title something about cheese i don't know what it's going to be <laughs> they <laughs> they're have, already there exactly yeah. they have a given interest but what would you say to them? Like, how can they, you know, not to militarize this conversation too much, but how can they be a soldier in this fight? That's a really good question. And ultimately, I think it's about putting your money where your mouth is. Buying the, buying real cheese is the, it's, it's a link in that chain that allows everything else to work. The key sort of tips that I would give are buy your cheese from a cheesemonger go in and taste and ask a lot of really awkward questions and that like what like, like what is an awkward question an awkward question might be oh this is interesting um is, is this cheese made on a farm what what sort of um what sort of farming system is this cheesemaker using what percent of its diet is actually coming from forage from grass rather than from grains and concentrates um, are they making cheese every day or are they just making cheese a couple of times a week? How long is that milk refrigerated for before it's turned into cheese? These are fundamental questions that really get to the heart of what cheese quality is all about. And the best place to promote that sort of Darwinian evolution and the survival of the very, very best cheeses is to start selecting according to like more complete knowledge about where the cheeses come from and the flavor of them because those two things fit together really closely. That is awkwardness with a purpose. Absolutely, absolutely. It's bringing the conversation and the rigor to the cheese industry that I think has really caused other industries like wine to be so, so successful and to reward the very best farmers, to make farmers into superstars and to reward them for the absolutely backbreaking, grueling work that they're doing every day. Something that I loved learning about, speaking of the farmers and the history of cheese in Britain, is the role that women played in cheese making from the get-go. In the UK, you had the men out taking care of the animals and the women 
basically doing everything else. <laughs> the classic. <laughs> so cheeses were made in the kitchen or right off the kitchen. And the British cheese make reflects that incredibly well because they're these long, slow makes that just weave perfectly into the activities of the day. It might take 12 or 14 or 24 hours to make some of these British styles of cheese. Um, but the nice thing is you're not constantly hefting curd around. It doesn't require constant attention. You might do a little bit every hour, every two or three hours near the end of the process. Just come back, um, break up the curd, tuck it back in, go off, make dinner, take care of the kids, do whatever, you know, keep keep the, the family and the house running. And that was cheese making. And one of the big catastrophes for British cheese, and again, that happened in plain sight with nobody recognizing what was going on, was when that cheese making went from the female sphere into a professionalized male sphere. And suddenly you have this big interest in making those cheeses within an eight hour shift. And not only that, not only just speeding it up so the whole process could be complete within that time, but keeping people busy for the whole time. Because the last thing you want to do is to be paying your, your workforce to read the paper and smoke cigarettes. You know, they need to be busy. And so it really, trying to squeeze these long, expansive, slow makes into this completely different system has totally made those cheeses taste more crumbly, more acid, more sharp. That those aren't the original flavors of British cheeses. They used to be, they, they describe them as rich, buttery, mellow, um, savory, nutty. And today we think of British cheeses as acid, sharp, lemony. Those are those are the flavors of modernity. You have said that you know the trajectory of things right now is hopeful at least, and that um, you know the the startup cheese scene it has a momentum. It, it it has never been a more exciting time to be working with cheese than right now. I think, and I've never known a time when we've seen so many new cheeses that are so great right on the horizon. And I think that speaks of this energy and this future for real cheese. Energy is exactly the word that I was thinking of. There <laughs> is an energy around this. Absolutely. And I would say there is an entrepreneurial spirit to mm -hmm. a lot of the the things that are going down. And I know that you obviously work for Neil's Yard Dairy, but I would pinpoint in you a certain entrepreneurial spirit in how you are going about with this fight for real cheese. Mm. I think yeah, maybe it's just that I get bored easily and then I look for more things to, more things to I do. I can relate. <laughs> but, you know, recognizing that just waiting for a system to play itself out is, it's a long wait. And without a lot of pieces being put into place and pushed forward, it this kind of evolution could take, you know, longer than our lifetimes. Yeah. We don't have that long to take, wait. Gotta take action. <laughs> Real cheese doesn't have that long to wait. Like yeah. there is there is this threat that if you're not moving forward, you're actually in the process of declining. What's your favorite way to eat cheese? And because you get to eat so much of it and in so many, you know, different steps along the way too, do you do you even cook with cheese or have you become kind of a cheese purist where you just want the cheese? I love cooking with cheese and I think it's something that, you know, has has sort of 
startled maybe some cheesemakers who feel like this is this is their cheese and the only place that the cheese could ever be eaten is on the cheese board. Right. I love putting I love putting together cheese boards. I think sometimes that classic after dinner cheese board is not the place where some of our best British territorial cheeses show themselves. When you put Cheshire on a cheese board after dinner, it can kind of get lost. Um, but if we find the gastronomic moment that's perfect for Cheshire, I think a big wadge of cheese to have for lunch with some really, really good bread. Yes. All you need. I mean, that is my heaven. (laughs) That is my heaven. And by the way, my favorite bread for that purpose is one that you guys sell Mm -hmm. at Neil's Yard Dairy. Little Bread Peddler has this incredible, um, uh, port. Yes. The dark colored bread. It's so delicious. It is the best. It's just like, it's just essential. You know, this is, is. this is food stripped down to it's, it's sort of basic, but so glorious in, in that simplicity. Um, Exactly. So I love eating cheese that way. I love having cheese before dinner. It's very American um, (laughs) where, you know, just we're having a a dinner party or inviting people over for lunch as we're cooking, putting out a really nice selection of some cheeses just that everybody can can nibble on while we're while we're cooking and and chatting is one of the best ways to enjoy cheese. And then finally, yeah, really good cheese melted on, you know, melted on potatoes or, you know, cooking with cheese, I think the better the cheese, the better the results, and it's not some place to skimp, some place to spend up. What are some of your other favorite ways to cook with it? Are you a fondue person? We haven't made a lot of fondue, which is interesting because my uh, my great grandparents were Swiss, so I oh, feel like oh, it's in your blood. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Making macaroni and cheese is really good. You can make a bechamel sauce and you know melt in. Uh, maybe a combination of different cheese. That's probably as close as we get to fondue, but wow. You know. I mean, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Cheddar, Lancashire, all of these cheeses just work so beautifully in macaroni and cheese. Um, we love making our own tacos and um, putting some cheese, you know, melting some cheese on mushrooms and making sort of vegetarian tacos with homemade tortillas. I mean, there's so many, any, any place where you would use cheese is just fabulous for farmhouse cheese. Bronwyn, how do you keep it quirky? All right. This is going to tell you everything about Francis and me. We absolutely love what we do so much to the extent that when I was talking with Francis, his 40th birthday is coming up. And I said, what are we going to do for your 40th birthday? Shall we go like swim with dolphins or, you know, visit the Grand Canyon or, you know, take take some amazing trip? What would you like to do more than anything else? And he said, Maybe we could go on another book tour and go do more presentations about reinventing the wheel. <laughs> that is dedication. <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty weird. But yeah, no, I think it. I think it really sums up. You know, this is something that is a profession, but it's also something that we love and care about so much that having it all-consuming is actually a joy rather than um, a slog. And that's how you know that you have found your calling. And I think that's what a lot of people who listen to this podcast are trying to find their calling. And and you did. So you just like live the quirky life because <laughs> you you are doing every day what makes you tick. Yeah, absolutely. As weird and as niche as it is. <laughs> it's so good. Thanks, Bronwyn. Thanks. 
Thank you again, Bronwyn. I will think about the things you said every time I eat cheese, which is as much as possible. Um, everyone hit me up with comments or suggestions of who I should have on the pod at QKD on Instagram and Twitter and at Keep It Quirky Podcast on Instagram. Yes, there is an entire Instagram that is devoted to this pod. If you enjoy it, please follow on Instagram. And thank you to my brother, Brian Quinn, for the music that you hear. It's a super awesome theme song and I love having musician brother. As always, I will see you right back here next week. I'm very excited about next week's guest. And until then, keep it quirky. Bye. Bye.